What's up, everyone? This is Illiterate. My name is Evan. I just checked out the Tolkien movie from 2019. I'm hanging out with my buddy Taylor. I looked into Variety magazine from decades ago. <laughs> oh, Lord. Last week, all Tolkien, all the time, trying to contextualize what this story was in its birth all the way through its first adaptations. And now we're closing in on the development period leading up to the films that broke through. Peter Jackson is the topic of the day. <laughs> yeah. But quickly, before we move into the breadth of all this, like I said, I did check out the Tolkien movie. The Report. Mm. Is you it know, what we talked about with him? Yeah, <laughs> it did. Yeah, you know, yes, it covers it. Covers it. I was a little bit underwhelmed with how much it relies visually on tonally everything in Lord of the Rings. Really, it's so it's really heavy hand, <laughs> um, you know, in in its in its parallels. And I thought that that really was unnecessary. His story on its own is good without trying to make everything like it's something in, out of Lord of the Rings. I understand some things actually are, but like not like, like you know, yeah, yeah. <laughs> I, it, a little bit just for my taste. But if you are really into these stories, which they're, you know, uh, everybody loves these things. So if yeah, you yeah. love these things, I feel like this is a cool companion piece. Give it a shot. Yeah. Uh, yeah. yeah, if yeah. You no, to get, it, get it's, more it's not bad. Yeah. It's certainly well-made. It don't, don't yeah. get me wrong. It's like well-made. So yeah. it's, uh, <laughs> I'm just a taste wise, a little heavy handed for me, but I think if this, if you like this stuff, it's awesome. Um, but yeah, so moving on, we're taking Tolkien's hand all the way in. We've had a couple of those adaptations, the animated things and more starts and stops than I ever imagined. I mean, really mm -hmm. now we're approaching the man that galvanizes this thing and brings it into the modern age for everyone. And the question really everybody asks is, well, how did he get, how, how did he, <laughs> you know, but I think what we're going to cover today is, is the inverse of that uh -huh. is a bit more. How did he convince them? Right. <laughs> uh, not how did he get it, but how did they, after, after these false starts, how did they, how did he convince them that there was actually something worthwhile here? Uh, how did he convince yeah. them that the story was actually uh, filmable? <laughs> exactly. Yeah. We don't have the precedent of, which is what every studio executive wants now, vast untapped cinematic world building franchise material. This was confusing, nerdy underground junk dusty british literature with movies that stunk so you know uneven un you know false starts yeah. <laughs> no ends that was i mean i can't believe they if you didn't yeah. listen to it go back it's, it's not ending something oh my god yeah um, <laughs> well that ties directly into him why him what he's he first read it when he was 17 so he's not a diehard that's read it every year and was a seminal part of his upbringing he had read it because he'd seen Ralph Bakshi's film, The Unfinished One, that was the mm. rotoscoped animated mm -hmm. situation. And so he wanted to read the book to see what happened after. He wanted uh, to finish it. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> basically. Uh, and then followed was curious. I mean, it's his jam, Read the Hobbit, Silmarillion, which is the deeper lore stuff. Listen to the BBC audio adaptation. I had mentioned that that had come out in the 80s. So that also got him into this lore. And 
put it on the back burner, thought surely somebody will do this, gets to mid-90s when he's in the film scene now, and he wanted to do some sort of a fantasy high epic thing. Fran, who is is his co-writer and partner on everything, they started referring to these books when writing their story. And they're just like, well, why don't we inquire about the rights? Because nothing yeah. ever came from it. And and everything we're doing is basically what <laughs> he was available. doing. Yeah. <laughs> Should we check on it? Uh, let's get into a little bit of Peter Jackson's junk before so that we know when we're people are the, the question that people do ask, how did he get to do this? Because he was didn't seem like the James Cameron big epic person. He had done a couple films before. And Evan, you're probably familiar with some of these, maybe. But oh yeah, uh, um, yeah. bad taste. Uh, right. One of his big early films. Uh, we saw that at, at film school. Pretty, pretty, pretty wild. Pretty influential. I was really fond of Heavenly Creatures about the two girls that <laughs> create their own uh, world inside their heads and basically go off and have a rampage. Yeah. Um, Period but- piece based on a real murder. Right. Yeah. I'm, I believe so. Absolutely. Yeah. Kate Winslet. So it's her uh, pre-Titanic. This is actually the thing that gets her the role in Titanic. So the, this movie really does start to spawn out a lot of things that we're still feeling the effect of. Um, mm-hmm. It's through this that, I mean, it, this production is much bigger than Bad Taste. Bad Taste is a run and gun, low budget. <laughs> indie, I mean, And it it's a, like gross aliens gross. attack. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> a Puppets big effects, and, huge mm-hmm. genre. But, uh, you know, very pulpy, uh, mm-hmm. 80s horror uh, subgenre film, whereas Heavenly Creatures mm-hmm. is much more refined, uh, a much more a Hollywood uh, picture. And it's really demonstrating Peter Jackson's ability as an established filmmaker, somebody who can wield good amounts of money, real talent and do something with it. Yeah. And again, picks Kate Winslet and really helps start her career. This is one of, one of her biggest things. Um, and then Titanic yeah. galvanizes it. So that, the, yeah, that was his inflection point in the nineties. Cause the other ones that he had was meet the feebles, which puts team America to shame. It's these raunchy puppets situation. Oh. <laughs> and then brain dead is this zombie comedy. So he's all over the map, mostly though, what somebody said, I saw in a review of his work, gore and guffaw. This yeah. was his time frame, but then, Heavenly Creatures, this more art house, serious murder drama, uh, uh, an eclectic body of work, but it will pay dividends when it comes to being able to prove his worth on such an eclectic piece. Even though Lord of the Rings is fantasy, there is drama and horror and romance and effects and puppets (laughs) and all sorts of everything that he's been messing with. So the rights where he and Fran go to look for who had this. I had said United Artists had sold them because they were holding on to them. They sold them to make that Ralph Bakshi half-made thing to Saul Zantz, who is a producer. And so his company is the one that had it. Hmm. Uh, They call up Harvey Weinstein of Miramax because they had a first look deal with him. That's where their films go. This is Peter Jackson's window into the industry he had just bailed out Saul Zantz on a film, giving him the needed cash to finish it. Oh, yeah. So they, so there was a business relationship there, and they worked out a deal. And Saul oh, Zantz, okay. his company, 
which now is called Middle Earth Enterprises, have been the ones that have been raking in the dough on this wow. <laughs> the whole time. Wow. Just a, but kind of by a fluke from the other thing. But that's where they got the rights from. And this is just modern news because it's so recent. It switched hands finally. They yeah. entered into an agreement last month, which is August of 2022, selling that's... everything, Tolkien, to a company I had never heard of, the Embracer Group, which is like a conglomeration of... It's from Sweden, though. It's a video a CIA game. CIA syndicate? Most, yeah, maybe, maybe. <laughs> uh, specializing in video games, though. But they have close to 100 different game studios that are under this umbrella. Whoa. And they also own Dark Horse, the Whoa. comics and Whoa. media. They, uh, yeah. Okay, okay. So okay. they're going so to get everything sense. Yeah. Lord of the Rings. But yeah, that's just the modern thing. But yeah, so Very Weinstein is in on it. And they had pitched, Peter Jackson did it as two films and Weinstein said, no, this has got to be one. And there was a whole bunch of madness with that. And so he drops out, it's going to go into hell. And so they're like, you've got four weeks to find a new financier and to take the brunt of this because we're not going to at Miramax. So Peter, Fran, Philippa, who's another co-writer and Richard, who's the head of Weta, which was and is Peter Jackson's company for the effects and whatnot. They put something together, make a trailer footage with miniatures, lighting, computer renders, illustrations to try and get this. What uh, year is this? This is late 90s. I think 96 or 97. Gotcha. Okay. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. So this, you know, they have almost started on some stuff, at least storyboards and ideas and whatnot. Yeah, yeah, yeah. They have material even though it didn't really go through. So they have some things to work with. But- all of their their idea gets turned down by everyone in Hollywood, and I saw something funny that Peter Jackson was saying. He was like, "They were trying to prove their worth in a way. They were putting on the pretense that they were so busy rescheduling meetings to seem sought after, just really <laughs> oh working Hollywood." But nobody bites. Their last hope is New Line Cinema, and I was wondering why this place, mm-hmm. and it's a perfect merging of forgetting the time and place that it's in uh mm-hmm. one man in particular who i'd never heard the name of mark ordesky was a junior executive at new line when they were starting out he's also a rabid tolkien fan and he became friends with this bizarre kiwi director uh, peter yes. jackson jackson slept on his couch when he was in la you know, when he's working on earlier yes. stuff to and fro ordesky made it to the head of the specialty division at new line who then he would oversee production of Lord of the Rings. So he's got somebody who can shuttle this along. Yeah. And then New Line themselves, I don't know anything about. So I looked into that and they were sort of a maverick company. Almost, I don't know if A24 is a comparable brand. I would say so. They, uh, they, they were hot on the uh, the horror scene. That, that was yeah. where all, all of the horror uh, stuff, late 80s and through the 90s, was really coming out of. And that lasted into the early 2000s, really. Um, that's yeah. what I think of them. They're Freddy Krueger. They're Jason and everything <laughs> yeah, yeah. similar to that, really. Yeah. Um, not in the beef, not in the B and C flicks, but the more upper yeah. echelon. But but that was really what they were pumping out. Scream, you know, th- those types mm. of things. Um, yeah. 
it's funny with his history horror effects genre that makes a little bit of sense actually knowing where they are and they're like you said a maverick they're jumping on as horror becomes a new thing post scream they're jumping on that all the same uh that yeah that completely revitalizes the genre the genre they were already in and they Boom, they're off to the races all in a new, fresh take. Now we're doing yeah. more screams. Now we're doing Halloween-like scream. <laughs> right. Uh, the, I know yeah. what you did last summer, uh, Urban Legend. All So that's what that's what they were doing. Yeah. And it started also in terms of right place, right time, right person. Bob Shea in 1967, when he was only 27, out of his apartment in New York City. And it was distribution only, which is what A24 did to start. Mm -hmm. And what he was doing was supplying foreign and art films for college campuses. So he probably also has a appreciation and awareness of the understanding of what Peter Jackson is doing, being a New Zealander, making these more obscure eccentric films to start out. He kind of gets that (laughs) also when this guy is presenting this. So he's the main chairman, Bob Shea. They go in. He said, sure, love it, but no. And they're like, oh, God, he's going to want to do the one film thing like Weinstein. And he's like, why aren't we doing three films? (laughs) (laughs) And he said, also, let's film them simultaneously. Let's not waste time. Well, that I agree with. (laughs) If you're going to do three, you have to do it all in one shot or or in an immediate succession you can't wait around and see how the success of one that that's a business model that i think post lord of the rings maybe we save this for the next episode yeah yeah, yeah. just i think it has affected everything and we putting things out with their first leg without knowing the back half and how it's it's a ridiculous (laughs) way to tell a story but i digress yeah it was just a huge gamble for but again they're not uh they're they're taking the big swing chances new line is so Finally, they, they uh, Peter Jackson gets somebody on board. Yeah. The next thought then, though, is the enormity of this and the almost unfilmability that had been perceived with mm. the previous stuff. How are they going to write this? Because a lot of this stuff is not in the books or is shifted around and whatnot. Who's involved? Like all, all that kind of stuff I was interested in. At this phase, when they say, "Okay, we're going to do yeah. it," you got to you got to put this all together. So here's here's what I found as far as that's concerned with with uh, adapting this. Christian Rivers is on board. He was storyboard artist. Met mm. Peter when they were seventeen. Been working on all his stuff. Fran Walsh, as I said, his uh, co-writer forever. Philippa Boyens, who is another writer, read the book seven times. One of her daughters ends up no, being a no. Hobbit in Fellowship. She's on board. Stephen Sinclair, who was also one of his friends, wrote earlier stuff with him and helped with Two Towers, but not the other two. Mm, um, okay. But this is, like I said, 97. They're taking a crack at writing all this. Obviously, it can't correspond exactly. And a thing that it, he does differently is it takes more of a chronological and a less interlacing of storylines. And I didn't realize this was a bigger mm. part of the Tolkien stuff is entrelacement which I'm saying that wrong because it's French, but <laughs> it is a medieval literature narrative device used in Beowulf, used in other stories, and it is used in the Lord of the Rings books. Yeah. Uh, and this is what some scholars nicely call, he's like the last middle age author <laughs> because he's he's using Ooh, medieval yeah. writing style. But basically it's like 
the readers, like the characters, don't know what's happening to the others for long periods of time. So stories are picked up and dropped because they're out pursuing quests and doing different things. Sometimes groups are more ahead in time than others. So you realize, right. oh, well, that happened later or that was, oh, they've just been, we've just been missing. So you, so there's a bigger sense of cliffhangers and setups and payoffs and things like that. Yeah. But they really do have more intercutting in the films and say, this is about getting the ring to Mount Doom. Here's all the other stuff going on around that. But mm -hmm. we're tracking with that and we're popping off on the side. The books do not do that. The criticism is the lack of psychological depth where it's like, oh, this is just for 15 to 25 year olds who love action and violence. <laughs> and there's a lot more character reflection and they're debating and wrestling with their conscience. And so people say, well, they, they, they favor uh, <laughs> action and craziness, which is probably true. Um, gotcha. Yeah, and and got got rid of the you know some people are like oh it's a thematic butchering of the books, but but this leads me to the last one which I I thought one scholar discussed an interesting point is kind of the competing motives. So filmmaking is a business. Peter Jackson is under financial pressure and audience pressure and genre expectations, everything coalescing in two thousand one versus Tolkien, as we talked about in our first episode, who is risking only his spare time to make this. He had right, a solid right. job as well. So it's not like he was even doing this with a fire to get paid. Right. Uh, there, it's just a completely different setup for the, the different uh, creations. Gosh. I, I didn't want to bear too much on that. I found a website where somebody lists literally every single change from the book versus the film and underneath Boy. the pro and con weighted for what it does for the book and film in a positive and negative context. Jeez. Uh, that could be 7,000 episodes. It's like, we're not here to debate any of that. Right, right, right. People, this is, this is, you know, don't, please don't write us about that. <laughs> and what, what, what works and doesn't work in the films and books. I just wanted to throw out some of the stuff. Right. It's like, they were thinking about these things. Like I said, Tolkien hated everything regardless. Any uh, filmic version was going to be. Blurring. I loved how curmudgeonly he got in old in old age. That was almost yeah. surprising, but yeah. you know, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> well, well, maybe we'll talk about it in the third episode of like, well, did Peter Jackson create a new mythology like Tolkien wanted for his? It's more mm. commercial, mm -hmm. but people are interested in it, and they're getting deep into the lore that Peter Jackson is doing and talking about his versions of the characters and dressing up like them and and investing yeah. Yeah. equally into creating and getting tattoos about not all who wander are lost and <laughs> all sorts of stuff uh would well, they have done that with you know i mean you know tattoos? what he adds to it is is not to be understated and it's a great summation he is the bearer of all the artists that you know created the movie but ultimately he assembled right. those artists and he you know does get credit for much of that work and so the brunt the totality of that work now compared with Tolkien's ideas that that is bigger than the sum of its parts. Mm -hmm. <laughs> and that is, you know, at, at some extent, <laughs> it's indelible. His touch henceforth on this property. Uh, you know, we, we only know what these characters look like really in popular modern media mm -hmm. because Peter Jackson had an idea of what they looked like. And um, fought for it. Yeah. Strongly <laughs> to make it happen. 
Yeah. You know, yeah. Tolkien did not, only took these ideas so far. They looked, you know, they, they had some versions of them, but they're certainly not the versions that people are getting around, getting tattoos of. You know what I mean? <laughs> That's just right. not the reality of it. Uh, people were introduced to the Jackson versions of these characters, and people are invested in what happens before and after with these jackson mm. characters and that's just how it that, that's that, uh, un, you know fortunately unfortunately whichever way you right. want to look at it it just it really is and that's what that's the responsibility of a director because you can sink the ship just as easily <laughs> <laughs> right yeah one, what one cannot say that he did not or one can say he was successfully making these as films right you know there were unsuccessful versions of these <laughs> as films and for all various reasons, maybe because they didn't hew to the story the way that people wanted. But at the same time, you can also do it in a version. You know, I'm not a apologist for Peter Jackson and what he's doing. I just think it's like movies, no, are movies it, books are books and, 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 and that's what you have to do. Yeah. You gotta, you gotta do. It's yeah. the necessity of adaptation. Things have to change. They're different mediums and that's the work of the show. <laughs> that's yeah. what we do here. Um, and, and he was thinking, a, this is a great it, yeah. example. And of course, I mean, you have to, you absolutely have to, but I, yeah. I, I one little thing I pulled out there that I want to, yeah. I want to touch on that, you know, uh, watching some, and like we said, we're not going to delve into all of these things, but one thing that I have been continuously impressed with the more I learn about these films and, and, these are not these are not my nostalgia movies. But what mm. I've garnered is that the team amassed to make these movies might be the best single team of individual <laughs> artists ever assembled. Um, from what I know about what in what went into developing and designing these films, yeah, I just don't have anything else comparable <laughs> um it's staggering it's incredible the work belongs in a museum uh, the most most much of the artists involved belong you know just are, should be hailed and we don't even know their names uh, and you yeah. know and <laughs> You know, it's it's incredible. But yeah. if anybody has access to the you know, b bonus behind the feature, behind the scenes, DVDs, all of that stuff, go and look and go and pay attention to the people who are drawing and painting and sculpting and putting yeah, their right. work, sweat, blood, elbow grease and tears into creating these things because they absolutely that it's on another level. The concept art for this film is on another level. Yeah, I can't. Yeah. Express and that's it yeah. To you. You can't, uh, even if you hate everything that it represents, right, it's like I, the level of care and effort is what it was known and is known for is uh, maybe these aren't my an movies. excessive amount. Yeah, right. <laughs> <laughs> but like these, these, this might be the single greatest individual artist team ever assembled. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. In terms of all aspects, Let, let's, I want to throw a lens on three weirder aspects that people forget because it has become the name of the game henceforth. But in terms of the challenge and our central question right. of how did he convince them, here's some other sides of things that needed convinced that pe that we just take for granted that aren't in. And I'm glad you brought up right. the artistry and the filming side of things. But here's some weird stuff that they really changed to make this what yeah. it is. Number one, the funding. So new lines on, but international distribution is a big part of this. And Rolf Mitveg is the guy in charge of this. And so he's got to get 25 distributors because nowadays, if you're on a big studio, usually you've got it all figured out or you have one that does certain sectors, but mm -hmm, it was like very mm -hmm. piecemeal at this point. And so that's 25 different deals and 25 different God. attempts and terms and, and whatever. 
trying to get $160 million in advance and worldwide day and date negotiations, which is another layer, which isn't as much a big deal now, but then it was. What's um, he directed? Okay. <laughs> mm. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> and and India is supposed to like this. Why? And, you know, yeah, it's uh, it's all it's it's a big deal. So one of the stipulations that he had is you also have to commit to all three. God. Yeah. Yeah. No, I mean, and, and like I said, it's the, the amen to that. That's going to be the only reason that we actually got them, I think. Yeah. So I, this guy I is an unsung that. hero. He's the businessman, the, sh- the handshaker and the international, <laughs> you know, it's like, you don't think about that, yeah. but it covered two thirds of the budget. The, the question, if you're on the other side of the handshake, why are we going to risk this? Like some, some of these distribution places it's like we're gonna go bankrupt if this doesn't work and yeah it's it's like like the business model should not be let's make one and see what happens it should be like we have to make all of it or else (laughs) and you're joining in on the risk yeah Yeah, no like that that you know we we can't just make one because you will never make it back you have to make all of it if it's successful is besides the point you have to make all of it because then you have a chance at it being successful mm-hmm. at some point. If you yeah. stop making it, it will never find an audience. These things have lives beyond opening mm-hmm. weekend. I yeah. got to well, maybe gotta sit down. <laughs> to- <laughs> and maybe uh, Ralph Bakshi's half finished thing is also part of this. And the fear uh, yes. of that. Yeah. <laughs> That's so a, this is what I, this, yes. Yeah, and, yeah. And, and, and I, oh, I, I want to next, I'm in next week. I just want to talk about impact. <laughs> right. We'll get there. We'll get there. Sorry, well, so Rolf, Rolf, part of uh, how he gets these agreements to go ties back to the artistry, take him to the set. So 20 of the distributors met with Jackson, met with the cast, shown footage. Lord. They're flown to New Zealand, you know, because it's like proof is in the pudding. We're building stuff where this this is how good this is going to be trust get on this train <laughs> right and so the train rolls 274 shooting days madness <laughs> uh jacks peter jackson had a great mantra to constantly get people on the train he said one job at a time every job a success because mm-hmm. that's all you can think he's yeah. got to hold all this together as the director and like you said thousands of other people doing their part but everybody's putting eyes on him for the tone and the energy and the direction and ian mckellen was like best tone on set calm he's gentle i've worked mm. with authoritarian directors and there's a trust there you know if he says perfect we're moving on because yeah. he knows <laughs> he knows what it needs to be and then uh a name i've already mentioned ordesky the new line guy who was yeah. his friend from LA. He's on location for most of filming there for all of post, which took three years flying back and forth to LA to show the executives. So you've got somebody on the Hollywood side in your corner proving over and over and over that we're doing the right thing. And don't the production, (laughs) the production year took place what year? So filming started on this in October of 99 and went Mm. until December of 2000. That was the days that they were working. And then after the first one came out, maybe in the mix of it, but there were, there were pickup shots done from 2001 to 2003 to get when they had more money and they said, well, right, we got to okay. adjust this so and whatnot. But yeah, they're lensing it late 99. Yeah. It, first one comes out 2001. It explodes. Yeah. 
everything's in the can, but hey, now we got more, maybe some more money. Uh, oh, yeah. now we're looking at the story of it a different perspective. Now here's a solidified piece. Let's look at it in three acts now because we have all this material. People have seen the first act. Hmm, gets a little bit bigger there of 2001 yeah. to 2003 by the right. time the next, uh, by the time this uh, wraps up. Yeah, and that's the time that Ordesky, the post that I mentioned, he and he's yeah. flying back and forth and and yeah, never. So a huge endeavor. I mean, you're really working on these movies from 1999. There are people that be working on this movie 1999 all the way to 2003. Yeah, <laughs> and like I said, um, they started the you know 97 getting the rights and getting getting it together, and they already had started building things and and all that. Yeah, gosh. Um, so with now this is filmed mostly. The marketing is the third piece that has some unsung heroes, and we don't think of it the way that marketing is done in 2022. So the Cannes Film Festival in 2001 is the first big push. Mm. They had 26 minutes of footage for distributors and press, and this was the most talked about thing, and they had to kick people out of the theater to wow. get the next thing. Up I would love to see the real. I would love to to know what pieces and what state it was, you know. Yeah, <laughs> I think I mean probably a lot of the effects are not there, but yeah, yeah, it was also just for context, I looked at it. Moulin Rouge, Shrek and Mulholland Drive were also screened. Wow. For 2001 okay. at, at Cannes. Um but still, you know, skeptical Wizards and Elves had not been a blockbuster hit yet or it's the overt fairy tale fantasy willow and dark crystal right. and jim henson <laughs> kind of stuff that's what people know for wizards and elves and whatnot it's but, funny yeah. and and now i'm finally uncovering a piece about this that i've felt the entire time i've been digesting these films is that the uh -huh. first movie does feel very different than the other two Whereas the, from my perspective, the first movie feels like it was made in the nineties. It was, it has uh -huh. a nineties touch. It's a very smaller scope in terms of visually what we are allowed to see, how big this world is compared yeah. to where we get in the second and third film. Um, yeah. but when I watched that first movie, I, I, I got it immediately. I go, oh, this is a fairy tale. This is very intimate. This is very, this is cozy and beautiful. And it felt very, very tactile textured and real in the sense that just is what movies really ought to be striving to do. Uh, <laughs> what? Well, yeah. And, and yeah, then yeah. I felt that it, it started to, it started to betray that slightly in the second and third ones were getting so much bigger. The effects are so much bigger. They got more money. They went back to the table on some story issues and we got what we got, which are incredible with giant. And they set the template for all these sorts of things. But when I look at them now, I have an affinity for that first movie and what it is, how it feels, because it's so very different. And I think I just am more akin to that style of filmmaking as opposed to what they found in the process. Um, and what they found in the process has served us for 20 years uh, and has <laughs> set the I mean, but there's something about that first movie for me that feels a little more human, a little more real. It feels like I can reach out and touch it. Yeah. Uh, and I'm experiencing this, experiencing the story at six feet. Yeah. Um, well, ja Peter Jackson, I love this quote talking about the tone. He said, Tolkien created fantasy, but not in a condescending way. The books have a historical weight to them. He didn't treat it as a fantasy. And that's what appealed to us to make mm -hmm. a fantasy as a historical piece. Mm -hmm, so mm -hmm. yeah that's that's definitely what they were going for and what they were trying to 
uh, show people with the marketing. Right. <laughs> this is not. Right. This is the this is the real stuff. So yeah. the last thing they, yeah. they did at Cannes, which was uh, a gamble, I think, was hmm. they threw a, a Middle Earth party. Fifteen hundred guests bust to this French castle. They Whoa. had the, some of the parts of the sets there, costumed actors. Oh my god! Which I say is a gamble because festival press could be exhausted or consider it cheesy or trite or pandering or whatever. But <laughs> people were hype. And they and it really helped. It kind of Dude, shows I've, like, oh, I've got to yeah. track down pictures from this. This, this sounds <laughs> crazy. This sounds amazing. Yeah, but they, you know, they're saying like, you know, hey, we're in the big leagues here with this. Yeah, if it's not this team of artists, that then it's not got these choices attached to it. And then it's, at least aesthetically, then yeah, that that is a that's a giant that's a giant risk. But I think by the time you get there, you you okay, well, you have the costumes, you know, it's gonna. It, what the what the feeling is going to be when somebody walks into a room to see it with yeah. a drink in their hand under the lights? You know what I mean? That kind of thing. <laughs> By the time you're putting together the party, you have an idea. But on a general, like we're going to plan to do this two years out, that that's a bad idea. Don't. Or if everybody's <laughs> going to the Shrek party, yeah, you don't know. <laughs> right, 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 right. Who's um, hopping on the bus from their hotel? Is anybody <laughs> coming to this? Yeah. So it seems like the kind of thing you couldn't plan in advance because it would be outrageous to even think about <laughs> such a thing. But like, you get the idea on the lead up to it, seeing the opportunity because yeah. the things are beautiful to behold in person, and you want you go, oh, if people can be in the room with them, they'll understand what the movie mm-hmm. could be. Right. So that's the uh, the press side of things, but it's more than that, of course. It has to be the the audience and yeah. the true believers, because market research showed them that twenty percent of people had any idea what this was, and they're probably Gosh. the hippies from reading yeah, the books yes, from the seventies. Yes. They're so, all Peter Jackson's age, right? <laughs> <laughs> you, you know, the the thing that is lost on a lot of properties now, especially the superhero big situation is like it works when you get the people who care on board first and prove that you're not going to let them down you're not just catering to say hey let's get everybody that we can it's like you got to prove to the people who have been with this and love this for what it is so this was also something again we don't think about because it seems foolish and silly but their lord of the rings.net was the website it doesn't exist anymore but no uh one billion hits before the film opened, wow. and the website was up a year before the film was released in December. Wow. 2001. And this thing had clips, interactive maps, chat rooms, interviews, screensavers, oh. you know, people involved the in arch- the film, blogging, contacting fans. It was- The it Internet was, Archive, save the Wayback Machine, save a version of it or something. Dang. Evan, I can tell you that it does exist. I'll <gasps> post a link to it. Um, some of the links are broken and don't <laughs> go to the stuff, sure, which, sure, sure, the sure. secondary links, but you can, I mean, it's hideous to us <laughs> now, but Beautiful. it's amazing. Like I said, it's got one. It's archival. This is history. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I'll, I'll post a link to the archive, but yeah, it's, uh, I, I found a quote from new lines VP for worldwide marketing. And mm. I just love this. He said, not until the movie comes out do we want to ask the audience for anything. Until then, it's all about giving things to them. Mm. Which that's how you do it. Yeah, I like that. Create the buzz. Mm-hmm. And there was word that 1.7 million people downloaded the trailer the wow. first day. That the the first day. <laughs> and I saw a quote from a rival marketing executive who said, I think that's the whole audience. 
because they were salty about it. <laughs> oh my god. Oh, they're always there's always the voice in the room. That's hilarious. Yeah. But that uh but then of course it exploded. One of the concerns with the marketing and then when it opened was three months after 9-11, would people want this dark war of good versus evil clashing? And it did work well. It was something at least. It's elemental, were, you know, yeah, yeah. yeah, at some level they were ready for it. And it was so detached, you know, it's so fantasy. It's the perfect thing to help you process that that's what art is for, ladies and gentlemen. <laughs> um, you know, what an amazing a gift, yeah. actually, in the wake of some, something so horrible is to be able to, you know, as a as a uh, as a species, almost as certainly as a nation, to be able to like look at something and and process some trauma and feelings that we needed to process in the immediate aftermath. Uh, yeah, yeah. that's that's pretty substantial, uh, and I think that that's that's pretty connected to why it's so important to so many people, where people were mentally when they digested it for the first yeah. time. That's important. You can't understate it. <laughs> and I think part of the digesting palatability that I don't see too much talked about is Harry Potter and the Sorcerer's Stone or Philosopher's Stone came out the month before in November of 2001. And this came My out in gosh. December. My gosh. So it probably also got people going for some semi-realistic fantasy. Mm-hmm. It's but right up that alley. Of course, alley. the first Harry Potter is much more juvenile. And so then- this People are saying, well, that was up. fine, mm-hmm. but this is, yeah. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah, the, mm-hmm. the writers scared me. I didn't like That's it. actually pretty interesting in terms of what's happening, where the culture is at that time, uh, that all audiences got a taste of fantasy, good versus evil, very <laughs> elemental, you know. <laughs> yeah. Uh, that's that's, uh, that's pretty pretty wild for the back half of 2001. That's pretty yeah. cool. I, I, I'm, I'm, I hadn't thought about that. Yeah. But the last portion of this episode, I would like to go into the just a little bit about some of the effects only in one specific area, which is Peter Jackson, which we've we've harped on with him. Mm -hmm. And then the next episode will be the rest of the world and God help us all (laughs) all the other stuff that's come from this. But specifically, it ties back to why he was the person to convince them what a workshop he started in 1989 for Meet the Feebles, the puppet one. Yeah. And they had it was it was a self-sustaining business. They were doing museum installations, sculptures, film, anything with my gosh. work. Now they have makeup and prosthetics, armor, weapons, creatures, miniatures. But he he was geared to go with his own thing, his own company to start working on this. They're 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 one of the leading effects companies, bar none, for real. Yeah. Um yeah. <laughs> and then yeah, the offshoot Weta Digital which is now I think what a FX yeah, is. Yeah, they're uh, one of the leaders, yeah. Yeah, <laughs> they, they, they start, he started that in 93 for Heavenly Creatures. So that he already had, and they invented massive software, which is was yeah. used for the epi- for the fighting yeah. scenes and kind of gives it an AI for- Yeah, 90, 93 is, yeah. The, is the burgeoning time for digital. Um, yeah. And you know, that's exactly the same time that ILM is uh, making Jurassic Park. So the strides mm-hmm. being taken between 1991 and 1994 are insane. <laughs> and and it's funny too with things coming out like uh, the ILM documentary on Disney Plus, uh, really uh, illustrating how when a creative has the need for a certain thing that really is impossible, they create the entity that mm-hmm. can achieve it. Yeah. 
And this is another example of that. And it makes so much more sense when we're talking about, well, why him? And it's like, well, because he already had the literal businesses. He was already in the in the business of all of this stuff. Yeah. Because of his own musings of trying to make it happen. So he's not just some random New Zealand. You could ask why George Lucas. Well, he built it around him, you know. Yeah, yeah. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. So now, I mean, those are still owned by Peter Jackson, but what was added was Stone Street Studios, which is four sound stages in New Zealand, Park Road Post, which then he used for the Beatles Get Back, which we have an episode on, Portsmouth Rentals, which is all the equipment, craft services, extraneous stuff. But that's all his. But outside of that is uh, just the economy of New Zealand in general. And I love these stats. Tourism. Uh, Mm. International arrivals to Wellington increased 87% since the first Lord of the Rings film. My God. And people could say, oh, well, that's because people like the scenery and they've heard it's a nice place to vacation. 2019, because things went down from the pandemic, but in 2019, 33% of all holiday visitors surveyed said they went to a film location. Wow. A third of, I mean, a third said specifically, yeah, that's part of, uh, it had to do specifically with Lord of the I thought it was rare. (laughs) And the, the tourism stuff contributed that one year, 630 million to the economy. With all the hotel, not, you know, and it's like, oh, well, that is directly attributed to 33% related to what we came here in large part because of Lord of the Rings. Lord of the Rings. Oh my gosh. Oh my so gosh. It, it, uh, it's not just the film stuff with Peter Jackson. It's his home country. So then, yeah. Well, I don't, and I don't want to, I don't want to jump ahead to you, yeah. uh, too much, but on this notion of New Zealand being really opened up. In both ways, to and fro, does yeah. you know? I want to draw a connection to Flight of the Concords, really, yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> uh, because Flight of the Concords introduces us to talent that is now uh, dominating. Yeah, <laughs> um, Taika uh, is is part of that team. Uh, yeah, which we have an episode on JoJo, and he's doing all the Marvel stuff. Uh, yeah, yeah. Star Wars. It's it's just hard to even talk about how big. This New Zealand opening uh, up, yeah. opening up of talent has really become, and you can trace it right back to Lord of the Rings because it comes straight through. Uh, opening up, making that a more viable place to visit, uh, thinking of it in a cinematic way. Period. Now mm-hmm. people are paying attention. That means people are getting in rooms they didn't get in before. Suddenly, in 2007, you have a show like Flight of the Concords with Jermaine Clement and uh, Brett McKenzie and Taika come to the forefront and and yeah they're still making great things today that taika is like everywhere all the time in in particular right now (laughs) um so it it's pretty fun to draw that connection right back through Mm -hmm. to peter jackson (laughs) oh no it's it's exactly it you haven't you haven't jumped ahead at all that's that's exactly uh what he's done overall i think gosh the the final piece here which will which will lead us into next week is christopher tolkien the son mm. uh, he said they eviscerated the book by making it an no. action movie for young people aged 15 to 25 <laughs> tolkien has become a monster devoured by his own popularity and absorbed into the absurdity of our time etc etc the commercialization has reduced the aesthetic and philosophical impact etc oh my gosh there is only one solution for me to turn my head away 
<laughs> and so that's uh, one person who <laughs> whose father made this stuff. Next week, we will discuss what people think of what has become thus far with hobbits and rings of power and yeah halloween costumes and <laughs> wizards and all the like and yeah 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 and uh big tentpole universes yeah uh, yeah, yeah. <laughs> that that'll be my little soapbox i was trying to keep closed today good god uh thank you so much taylor incredible yeah, yeah. work thank you guys so much for listening i cannot express to you how important it is that you reach out to us and talk to us about what you're reading, what you are excited about coming on all your streaming platforms, what's on cable. We want to know. We want to know because we might do an episode that you will go gaga for. So get in touch with us at illiteratepod at gmail.com. Baby, let us know what you want an episode on. You never know. Until next week, we will see you right back here. Stay safe, everybody. See you then. Thank you.